0: Is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy Oates, and this is The Full Story. Right now, Australia has one of the highest rates of COVID 19 per capita in the world. Today, Guardian Australia's medical editor, Melissa Davey, breaks down why these numbers are so high and whether life saving new COVID 19 treatments are reaching the most vulnerable. It's Thursday, the 5th of May. So, Mel, I do feel like the national focus on COVID-19 has kind of dropped off over the last couple of weeks and and months. I'm not hearing about it as much personally. So I was surprised to hear that Australia has some of the highest rates of COVID-19 per capita in the world right now. Can you talk me through this? Is that true?
1: Yes, so according to the latest global data, which is being compiled by the University of Oxford in the UK, that's true. As of the 1st of May, we had 1,500 confirmed daily cases per million people of COVID-19 here in Australia. And so by comparison, places like the United States are much lower at just 161 cases per million. The UK was on about 221 per million. And this has also been backed up by the data in the latest weekly epidemiological report published by the World Health Organization, So their last report was on the 27th of April, and it said the highest numbers of new cases of COVID have been reported from Korea, Australia, and Japan. But it's not the first time we've been in the weekly report for having among the highest case numbers. Um, This isn't new. We were recording some of the highest case numbers per capita for much of the year, and it's actually gone down since the Omicron wave peak in early January I guess the picture is also a little bit more complicated than just um, case numbers because some countries do have very little testing, so the actual number of cases might not be accurate, and different countries have different testing criteria. And so, for example, testing rates in places like the United States are dropping quite dramatically. Mm. And last week the chief of the World Health Organisation warned that declining COVID-19 numbers worldwide could just be a result of significant cuts in testing for the virus.
0: So it's possible that part of the picture here behind Australia's daily case numbers is that Australia is just testing more than other places in the world, which is kind of good.
1: Yeah. So Australia does have some of the highest testing rates in the world. That's true. And obviously there have been issues with access to tests in Australia. No one's denying that. There have been various points throughout the pandemic where we all remember seeing those long lines outside of PCR testing clinics. And then we had the access to rapid antigen tests, but lots of that has resolved. And the the point is, I guess as well, Australians are very keen to get tested. We want access to those tests. We're very overall respectful of the public health advice and of what the health professionals are telling us that we should test and we should test often and we should be really aware of our symptoms. So all of that combined means that we do have high test rates here and this spread unlike in some other countries Is happening in a highly vaccinated population. So we have more than 95% of people over the age of 16 vaccinated. The health system is also pretty great in Australia at looking at the latest evidence for treatments for COVID and preparing for the virus.
0: So this picture is a bit less alarming when you consider our testing rates and our vaccination rates and our great health system. But What about the hospitalisation and deaths in Australia? If we can't look at cases because of our high vaccination rates, what about the the death numbers? What what do they show right now, Mel?
1: Yeah, so deaths from COVID-19 in Australia do remain consistent and some states are still experiencing double-digit daily death tolls. But mm. it has gone down since the start of the year. So there were nearly 1,700 deaths in January, for example, and about 800 deaths in March and um, in April. When it comes to the pressure on hospitals, I spoke to Professor Jason Kovacic, who is a cardiologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He's been treating COVID cases And he said the hospital system is actually coping pretty well. They've learned a lot from the past couple of years. They've got extra capacity to take on patients. Um, So he's not too concerned in terms of the ability to cope at the moment. And I should say that, you know, there are always pressures on the hospital system. And by no means is it a rosy picture where everything is fine. But overall, um, it's it's not the same kind of pressures we saw at the peak of the Omicron wave a few months ago. Mm. But he said with influenza cases also on the rise, people really need to get vaccinated against the flu because having that double whammy of flu and COVID could really increase the load on the
0: hospitals. Right, so pressure on hospitals have waned a little, but there's still hundreds of deaths a month, and we know that most of those deaths will be the unvaccinated, people with underlying conditions, and the elderly. Has anything changed in terms of the deaths we're seeing in Australia?
1: So spread is also reaching vulnerable populations now who were previously protected by restrictions. So this includes vaccinated people who are elderly or who have serious medical conditions. Um, They get some protection from the vaccination, but of course, because of their other conditions, um, they just don't get that really strong effect that other people might get from vaccination alone. And the Victorian Department of Health told me that there are a number of things going on leading to these deaths They include waning immunity from vaccination. So really, they're encouraging people to get that third dose if they haven't already. Mm. Professor Kovacic told me that it's still very, very random that a fit, healthy, vaccinated patient will come in with severe COVID. So it really shows the the beneficial impact of vaccination. But he said there's been a change in the deaths that they're seeing as well. So in the early um, peak of the Omicron wave, He was seeing deaths in people with respiratory distress. That's what COVID predominantly does, doesn't it? It really affects the lungs and it can lead to pneumonia and those kinds of respiratory conditions. So he was seeing people in hospital and sadly passing away or becoming very sick with chest infections and pneumonia and that kind of thing. But now it's more people who have those underlying health conditions that are dying. And what does that look like? He said it's kind of like this in-between period where now they're past that peak of hospitalizations and they're starting to see some of the organ complications emerge from people who were infected several weeks ago. Um, So their heart and lungs are shutting down, their kidneys might be failing and it's mainly those people in their 50s, 60s and 70s, again, with underlying health conditions who are really getting into trouble at the moment.
0: So, Ma, we've known that people with underlying conditions, all elderly people, and unvaccinated people are at risk for a very long time now. Is there more that could be done to reduce the death rates in this population?
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on who you talk to. I mean, there are still some people who think that we could be bringing in some restrictions, um, but. By and large, it's pretty agreed that that's just not practical or necessary anymore. We do need to move towards, as we keep hearing, living with the virus. We do know that um, now there are more treatments available and we're really relying on these now to assist those vulnerable Mm. people. So when COVID symptoms first present, there are a number of treatments that people can take in those very first days of symptoms that can help them recover and stop moving on to severe disease. You know, it can stop them from getting so sick that they need to go into hospital. And just recently, um, in in recent weeks, even some of these new medicines were listed on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which means that you can get a script from your doctor and you don't have to pay any out-of-pocket cost for those treatments. And they really work predominantly
0: by preventing
1: your your illness from developing into severe disease. So
0: we've got a raft of new preventative treatments. Tell me about them. What are they?
1: So as of Monday, so the 2nd of May, a drug called Paxlovid was made available on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and it's for certain high-risk patients with mild to moderate disease, um, disease with COVID that is, who are at high risk of becoming much sicker. Mm. So this is an oral antiviral treatment. That just means it's taken Um, like a tablet, it's taken by the mouth. And it's taken twice daily for five days, but it really, really should be taken within five days of symptoms appearing.
0: So taken for five days and also taken within five days of symptoms appearing.
1: Exactly right. And there's a similar drug called Legevrio. It's another antiviral drug, also on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. And again, it reduces the risk of getting severe infection, reduces your risk of going to hospital, And for this drug, four tablets are taken every 12 hours for five days. And it's most effective when taken as soon as possible after your symptoms show. So these two drugs can now be prescribed by GPs, but supply is really limited. You can't just you know, go to your GP, you or I couldn't just walk in and say, you know, give me a script. I'll keep it on hand just in case I get COVID. Yeah. Just keep it in the in the cupboard with my rat tests. It's not how it works. Um, you have to have been diagnosed with COVID. You need to meet a number of other criteria that makes you vulnerable to severe disease.
0: But as long as you are eligible, you can go to a GP and get a pill to take each day. That sounds pretty great, Mel. I mean, are all these new treatments that you've mentioned similar to this?
1: Um, There are some other treatments that are a bit more complicated than a a tablet. Um, There are a few treatments known as monoclonal antibody treatments, and a couple of their names include cetrovimab, ronapreve. You might have heard about those. And these need to be given through an intravenous infusion by a nurse. So it's a needle, it has to be given... healthcare facility by by someone medically qualified, obviously that's much less accessible than just getting a script and taking a tablet. And Mm. like the oral treatments though, the tablets, these intravenous treatments are most effective, again, when given in the first five days after symptom onset. And then we do also have some other treatments, um, both monoclonal antibody treatments and antiviral drug treatments that, can be given to patients when they are very sick and do require ventilation. It's not like we have absolutely nothing for those very severe patients. But Mm -hmm. ideally, you do want to get people early and, and stop them from getting to that point. And there is another unique treatment. Again, it's a monoclonal antibody called Evusheld. And this is the only treatment we have which can be given as a preventative. So it can stop you from developing that infection in the first place. And it provides antibodies directly to the body. It's um, given by two injections. And what happens is it just immediately targets and neutralizes the virus if a patient becomes exposed to it. So it can stop the virus from entering the cells in the body and causing an infection in the first
0: place. Why would we use a preventative treatment like this when the vaccine is available and effective as a preventative treatment?
1: So this drug, Evusheld, is really only for the extremely vulnerable. It's for people who are very sick with other conditions. It's very unlikely that the vaccine will offer them enough protection to fight off disease. And so Mm. this um, injection, it provides 6 to 12 months of protection from the virus now that's significantly shorter than vaccines. So even though it's described as a preventative, it's by no means a vaccine replacement.
0: So we have this raft of treatments that can be used at different stages of of sickness or as a preventative. What do we know about the risks or the the downsides of these new treatments?
1: Overall they're pretty well tolerated and and they're safe. They wouldn't have been approved otherwise, but All treatments do have some contraindications, so things that might make the drugs unsuitable for some people. People on certain Mm. other medications might not be able to take them People who are elderly, um, some of the drugs might be a bit too much for them. Some of the antivirals aren't recommended for use during pregnancy. Some of the treatments can't be used in patients with, for example, severe kidney damage or reduced liver function. And then the other thing is with the drug sotrovimab that we were talking about earlier, Australian virologists also found that in some very rare cases patients actually become resistant to the treatment. So in the days after it's given, they basically just produce no response to the drug and it just becomes ineffective for those patients. So this really highlights the importance of monitoring all of these treatments and how they work as we administer them, not just citrovimab, but all treatments. They're safe, they're well-tolerated usually, but there are some rare quirks that do take some time to emerge.
0: Next, are these life saving new COVID 19 treatments reaching the most vulnerable? So, Mel, as you've mentioned, these treatments are reserved for vulnerable people, but it sounds like there are some barriers to accessing them. I mean, what is the government doing to make sure it goes to the most vulnerable, the most in need.
1: What we know about the intravenous treatments or the monoclonal antibody treatments is they're going mostly to people already in hospital or in a healthcare facility or to people who are older and who have one or more other risk factors like obesity or chronic disease, heart failure, that kind of thing. And then the health department told me that these oral drugs, the tablets, will first go to Aboriginal community controlled health services, to GP respiratory clinics, so the clinics that deal with people who are suffering from things like asthma and pneumonia and severe conditions, and also residential aged care facilities. So all those facilities make sense to get first go at these drugs. They they all treat vulnerable people. Um, The government has tried to secure just more supply, and they have secured half a million treatment courses of Paxlovid, and about 300,000 courses of Lagevrio. Um, just for use during this year. Mm. But according to the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners President, adjunct Professor Karen Price, some people who are actually at greatest risk of COVID death are being prevented from accessing these treatments, particularly the tablets.
0: What is the problem here with these oral treatments specifically? Why are people having trouble accessing them?
1: So as we were talking about before, the, the key with these treatments is that you take them within five days. And so she said that that's not a lot of time um, given that in that five-day period, you need to get a test and mm. then notify your GP that you've actually returned a positive result. And then the GP needs to have an appointment available. And then the doctor then has to go through your eligibility criteria and make sure you're someone that can be given a script then you need to go and fill it at your pharmacy. And of course, that depends on supply being there at the pharmacy.
0: Right. So you and your GP need to know quite a bit about these treatments and really just jump onto accessing them. Is that happening?
1: Yeah. So a junk Professor Price was saying that this awareness is a issue at the moment. She would like to see more public awareness campaigns about these medicines and mm. also just more clarity on who is eligible. So As we were talking about before, if you're healthy or even if you're um, immunocompromised or sick, you can't just turn up to a GP and get a script and then fill it and keep it on hand just in case you get COVID. So really helping people to understand whether they're eligible, when they're eligible, and that really early testing and early notification to their GP is critical. All of those factors could be better communicated.
0: Right. I know that in some regional areas, GPs are booked out a month in advance because of a staff shortage. So you can imagine the type of problems this all raises. But even if you are able to act quickly and have access to all of the medical services you need, are the drugs readily available around the country, especially considering this tight five-day window that you need to take them in?
1: Yeah, so access to these drugs is new and the process is a bit convoluted from what I've been hearing from some doctors I've been speaking to. You know, that the Mm. drugs first go to the national stockpile, then the states and territories um, receive delivery of the drugs and then they allocate them to these high-risk facilities and to some pharmacists as well. And so it will take a, a while to, you know, iron out all of that.
0: Do we know if there have been any preventable deaths from COVID-19 because of a lack of awareness of these treatments and also a lack of availability?
1: Yeah, so the doctors I was speaking to about this say it seems pretty likely, um, but it is unclear at the moment. The president of the Australian Medical Association, Dr Omar Koshid. Said COVID deaths data really needs to be analysed closely to determine whether there were deaths that may have been prevented if if people were given access to these early treatments. So he said that state and territory health departments should really do quite a forensic look at the death data, and that means looking at every death, you know, asking whether each person did receive early treatment or not. If they didn't, could they have benefited from it? I mean, it's not reasonable to give every at-risk person treatment. Um, Not everyone will benefit. It does depend on their individual situations. But, you know, there are important questions to ask about these deaths and whether some people might have benefited from some of these treatments and just didn't get them.
0: So these treatments are just part of an arsenal that we have in Australia now to really reduce case numbers and reduce deaths. How significant are they within that arsenal yeah
1: the treatments we have now are pretty incredible and we're very lucky to have them and we have to remember that these are treatments that we have in combination with all of the usual actions we talk about and have talked about ever since we began doing podcast episodes on covid so follow public health advice wear masks where you're told to wear masks get vaccinated test when you have symptoms, follow isolation guidelines, and try not to let complacency set in. I know it's very difficult, you know, some two and a half years after we first began talking about it. You know, I get sick of it. Everyone gets sick of it. Everyone wants to move on, but we don't need to throw out all of those measures that are often, you know, quite basic to follow. And um, we shouldn't just rely on treatments to get us out of this, just like we can't only rely on vaccination. It's going to be a combination of things we need to continue to do to make sure that really our most vulnerable are are staying out of hospital where possible.
0: That was Melissa Davey, Guardian Australia's medical editor. You can read more of our latest reporting on the COVID pandemic at theguardian.com, including Mel's latest article about the need for more awareness of these new treatments. It's linked on the Full Story page as well. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Ellen Lee Beater, and Joe Koning. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martinoni, Gabrielle Jackson, and me, Laura Murphy Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.